It's Thursday, August 23rd, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump has now weighed in on both his former lawyer and former campaign chairman becoming convicted felons, and he has praise for one and jabs for the other. The president continues to say good things about Paul Manafort, but has nothing but contempt for Michael Cohen. Lauren Meyer, news editor for Axios, joins us for all the fallout and why Michael Cohen is willing to spill more secrets. Next, we all know how expensive health insurance can be. Health plans are so expensive that Americans are being priced out and ditching it altogether. Now, they're turning to a patchwork of alternatives to help them get by. John Tozzi, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News, is following the healthcare stories of a dozen families for over a year and will join us to talk about two alternatives that are growing in popularity. Finally, it is a punctuation that might be getting overused in recent times, and it is also causing a lot of anxiety. It's the exclamation point. People are using it too much in texts and emails, and it makes people feel weird. On the other hand, when people don't use one, it makes you feel like they might be angry or upset at you. Katie Binley, personal tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about why the exclamation point is making people freak out. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. As the president has stated on numerous occasions, he did nothing wrong. There are no charges against him in this. And just because Michael Cohen made a plea deal doesn't mean that that implicates the president on anything. I don't think the president's concerned at all. We're going to continue focusing on the things that Americans care about and that we can have an impact on. Joining us now is Lauren Meyer, news editor for Axios. We're going to be talking about all the fallout after Paul Manafort was found guilty on eight charges of bank fraud and tax fraud, and also the president's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, pleading guilty to eight charges of fraud and also some campaign finance violations. But first, let's start off with reaction from the president. President Trump started his Wednesday morning tweeting that both his former lawyer and his campaign chairman, who are now both convicted felons, are actually guilty of little or nothing. So within an hour, the president seemed open to the possibility of a pardon for Paul Manafort, which would really likely only increase the suspicion of wrongdoing by the president. And at the same time, he accused Michael Cohen, not only making up stories to cling to deal, but also insisted that the campaign finance violations that Cohen pleaded guilty to are really not crimes at all. One of the other tweets from the president, this is moving on to Michael Cohen, said that he pled guilty to two counts of campaign finance violations that are not a crime. And he brought in President Obama, said he had a big campaign finance violation. Also, it was easily settled. And that is true. President Obama did have a big violation. He had to pay like some $375,000 in a fine. But in this case, Michael Cohen's charges are criminal charges, which is why he is facing jail time of up to 65 years. But with Obama's 2008 campaign, they paid one of the largest fines of any presidential campaign for failing to give adequate notice of around 1,300 campaign contributions, which totaled over $1.8 million. So it's a different kind of violation than Cohen, which is basically being accused of paying a woman that then candidate had an affair with. So these are two very separate violations, but a lot of people are drawing connections between the two. Right. And that's really where the difference is, is that in the case of Michael Cohen, he said that President Trump ordered him to do it, that he knowingly knew that he would be committing a crime because they were going to hide it. It was hush money. They were obviously not going to report it. And it was done in an effort to influence the election. So that's really the sticking point here. That's why Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to it. And that's why it's a criminal act. 
by pleading guilty, what Cohen is doing is that both he and prosecutors are avoiding the uncertainty of a trial. We saw with the Paul Manafort trial the media attention around it, the political implications of it. But so what this plea deal is really a significant blow for Trump. So Cohen was part of his inner circle for more than a decade. He worked as his personal attorney at the Trump Organization and continued to advise the president even after the election. So while he wasn't directly involved in the White House, he did advise the president to a certain level even after he was elected. Yeah, I mean, he knows so much because he just the proximity that he was to the president all the time. Michael Cohen's lawyer, Lanny Davis, went on MSNBC and said that he's willing to spill a lot of other secrets, that he has knowledge of certain subjects that could be of interest to the special counsel. People are speculating that the president knew about the 2016 meeting at the Trump Tower and he knew about the Russian hacking of the Democratic institutions. So if Michael Cohen comes clean with some of that stuff, it really puts the president in some potential legal trouble. It really does. And people keep floating around this idea of an impeachment and impeachment proceedings against President Trump, while not immediate, did go from a theoretical danger to a pretty vivid reality with Cohen's guilty plea. You can indict a sitting president. So some people have said if they want to pursue something, they might just wait till he gets out of office to charge him with some stuff. Impeachment is a hard sell, but that's why the midterm elections are so important. Republicans are saying, you know, we have to win to avoid something like this because, you know, it's going to be in the back of the minds of Democrats if they take over the House. Something that Democrats have been saying is that they're really using this guilty plea from Michael Cohen to advance another fight, which is delaying the confirmation process of Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. They're arguing that because Cohen implicated President Trump in a financial crime, that that is something that is too inappropriate of Trump to be allowed to select a Supreme Court justice. New York State has subpoenaed Michael Cohen in the probe about the Trump Foundation now. This really just came one day after pleading guilty to eight counts of criminal financial charges. And what this investigation is looking into, led by the New York Attorney General, who argues that Trump used charitable assets to pay off legal obligations of entities he controlled to promote Trump hotels, purchase personal items, and even support his presidential election campaign. It also names hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Trump Foundation improperly used in a number of instances. So the big connection here that the subpoena is, I believe, trying to link to is that if Cohen was already implicit in making illegal payments at Trump direction, could he have any connection to these illegal payments that the state alleges the Trump Foundation to have made in the years prior? They've always said that Michael Cohen was potentially the most dangerous person to the president because of how much he knows. And now it's I kind of all starting to come out. Lauren Meyer, news editor for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Groups called healthcare sharing ministries that are religious nonprofit organizations that in some ways resemble health insurance, but they are not insurance plans. But they are our membership based groups where people pay in a certain amount per month to be a part of it. And when they have medical costs, they can draw on the contributions of other members to pay for some of those costs. Joining us now is John Tazi, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. 
We're going to be talking about healthcare. I mean, people are really turning to a lot of alternative methods to keep themselves covered. You guys there at Bloomberg, first off, are following a dozen families for a year in an effort to kind of understand what they're doing with the rising costs of healthcare. Tell us a little bit more about that. You're right. We're following about a dozen families across the United States that we've been in touch with since early this year, checking in who are ongoing uninsured in 2018. Some of them have been uninsured for longer, but the goal is to really talk to lots of people in lots of different circumstances. Some of them are well off, some of them are struggling, some of them are in between, but who for one reason or another are kind of outside of the formal health insurance system. As we've been doing this project, more people have come in through the door. So we've been in touch with a big number of people over the past six or eight months. They totally understand that this is a gamble. They know that they're risking possibly going bankrupt if something really big happens. But they're coming up with interesting ways to cover themselves. Some of these families are doing a patchwork of things where they're joining a a religious group and they share the costs that way. Other people are doing things where they're visiting a primary care doctor who charges them a monthly fee and they can see them unlimited times. How do these two systems work? We spoke with one family in Boise, Idaho, who were kind of combining these different approaches. So there are groups called healthcare sharing ministries that are religious nonprofit organizations that in some ways resemble health insurance, but they are not insurance plans. They're not regulated like insurers. They don't have to adhere to the same benefit requirements or rules around having reserves to pay claims that insurance companies have to follow. Instead, what they are are membership-based groups where people pay in a certain amount per month to be a part of it. And when they have medical costs, they can draw on the contributions of other members to pay for some of those costs. One of the groups you talk about in your article is Liberty HealthShare, and you have to sign a few agreements that you're going to adhere to uh, Christian principles and that they can refuse helping you if they deem the reason you got injured to be outside of the scope of what they deem immoral. So they won't pay medical costs for a drunk driver, for example. Right. There are all sorts of things that would have to be covered by regulated insurance plans that these groups do not or may not cover things around mental health treatment, for example, contraception and other services related to reproductive health may be excluded. Another thing to note is that pre-existing conditions coverage can be limited for a period of up to three years in the plan that we looked at. But again, these are entities that aren't bound by the same rules that regulated insurance companies follow. Part of the appeal for some of the folks that we're talking to is that it is is often less expensive to join one of these groups than it would be to purchase an equivalent insurance product. One of the other interesting ones I mentioned a little earlier was, uh, you know, seeing a primary care doctor who sets up their own little network, basically. You pay me a monthly fee for your family and you can come and see me anytime. And that one actually seems pretty good. You have a, an example where a woman said she had like a bad earache or something. She called her doctor late on a Saturday and it was almost like making a house call. They said, visit me at the clinic. We'll see what's going on. And and that personalized healthcare really came through for her in that moment. Yeah, I mean, this is another sort of aspect of healthcare that's growing, I think, somewhat in response to the frustrations that many patients have around the insurance based system and the overall cost of care and quality of care. 
So, you know, there's a, a basically a group of doctors who have decided that they are not going to take health insurance. They're not going to be part of the insurance company's networks. Instead, they're going to charge patients directly and they charge on a monthly basis. So people might pay $70 a month or $100 a month or $150 for a family or something like that to be part of this primary care practice. That way, they're not paying every time they're going in and they can go in as often as they like. And so this is another sort of aspect of, uh, I guess, direct-to-consumer healthcare that we've seen growing. Obviously, there's a few drawbacks with that is, you know, some bigger things, you still probably need to go to a hospital. They probably can't handle a lot of the stuff there. Right. One of the things is that it's it's direct primary care that covers a lot of things, but not specialist care. It doesn't cover necessarily emergency care if it's a, a serious injury or catastrophic illness. So, you know, it's not a replacement for health plan. It's sort of another way of getting some piece of what health insurance might provide. So all these families that you're following, how do they feel about the drawbacks, the pros and cons of this? They're paying a lot less monthly, but there are greater risks. I mean, are they happy with the way they've worked these things out? I think it depends on the individual. I think the family in Boise that we talked to for this story, I think they seem happier than they were under their previous insurance plan. Now, that was a plan with a high deductible. They accumulated a lot of medical debt that they're still paying off. But there are trade-offs. I think a number of people that I'm in touch with, I think if they could afford it, would prefer to have insurance and and they're, they're just not in a position to afford it because of the cost of premiums. So it's a mix. I don't think anybody has figured out a perfect solution to the puzzle that a lot of people are facing in terms of how do you find affordable quality health care on a limited budget. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to keep following your stuff because I'm curious to see how this develops over the course of the year. John Tazi, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. There seems to be an inordinate a number of exclamations. <laughs> well, I am. Um, I felt that the writing lacked a certain emotion and intensity. Ah, you know. Hmm. Mm. Um, it was a damp and chilly afternoon, so I decided to put on my sweatshirt. <laughs> Joining us now is Katie Binley, personal tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal. I always love stories about language and words and how we interact with others, especially at the workplace, because these are the people that you see more than your family sometimes. And you had this article in The Wall Street Journal about the tyranny of the exclamation point and how it's causing anxiety whenever you see one in an email or a text. What is this all about? This has, I mean, been for years now that people have just been using exclamation points more in text and in email. People worry about being misconstrued. And so you have this inflation of the exclamation point where it's being used all over the place in a variety of contexts. And it no longer means I'm excited or enthusiastic right now. You know, it can often mean I'm just trying to be friendly or I'm just trying to be sincere. But because it has so many different meanings, it can just cause confusion when there's not one. People can read into it a lot. You know, if they send a note and they get one back that doesn't have any exclamation points, some people feel overwhelmed if they see too many. You've talked to a lot of people about how they use it and how it impacts them when they're reading those emails and texts. I'm guilty of every single one of these things. Part of it is there's been a blurring of lines between email and text because we see a lot of it on our phones. So an email is almost as equal to a text. A lot of times you feel a sense of 
friendship with your boss and your managers. And yeah, you want to be nice. You want to be cordial. You want to be that same bubbly person you are in person. The only way to do that is with an exclamation point a lot of times. And I've been in that situation where you send something to somebody with a few exclamation points just to show the exuberance that you want to convey. And yeah, it's they'll shoot back something really curt, really short, and they might not mean it that way. And that's like the hardest thing to really square away. I definitely think you're right that a lot of people, they're communicating with their superiors and their colleagues in a variety of different ways that are obviously all digital, but you might sometimes text with your boss. And so there is this email used to be more formal. And now between email, text and Slack, I do think things have gotten a little bit more informal, at least in some working environments. One of my favorite examples you point out is you spoke to someone who said, I was trying to convey four different thoughts. At the end of each one of them, they all had excellent points. I've run into this where I do the same thing and I'll totally rewrite an email so that the tone is set properly still, but I have the number of exclamation points that I'm using. A common theme that came up was this like strategic use issue and the editing and the revising that's like very punctuation based. There's a lot of thought that goes into this. And one young woman I spoke with said that she limits herself to one per email now. And she just like chooses <laughs> where smart. it's going to go yeah. and what's the best spot. But she just <laughs> had a situation where she was using a lot of them and was like, whoo, this doesn't really seem like how everybody else in my office communicates. So she scaled back, but she was like, I still want to be true to myself and right. my personality. And I am kind of a bubbly person. So having none would feel too cold and outside of her personality. And so that's where the anxiety she goes with sets just in. one. There's been some studies though about the usage of the exclamation point of who uses it more between men and women. Beyond that, just where people are using periods on their own does really seem insincere a lot of times. What, what have these studies said? One of the studies is actually back from, it's from like 2006. Right now that seems like forever ago, but it was interesting because it, it mostly focused on what women are intending when they use them because a lot of research has shown that women do use them more often than men. What they found is the, the way they phrased it was markers of excitability. And they said that women are not necessarily using them as, quote, markers of excitability. They're often using them to convey friendliness or to sound genuine. So that was how they were using them. And I do think that usage in general has spread across genders because I talked to men who said that they worry about not coming off as genuine or cool, and that's why they're using them. And then in terms of just how the period comes across, I spoke with a professor who did a study about how people interpret periods in text messages specifically. So it wasn't looking at email or instant message, but just over text. And she did find that people, when they saw a period at the end of a text, they took it to be more abrupt than an exclamation point or no punctuation at all. There was something about the period in text messages that people found kind of abrupt. You do allude to it a little bit in the article, and I think it's totally appropriate in this age of emojis and whatnot. We need a new punctuation, something that's kind of halfway in between that could work. This guy I interviewed, he mentioned, uh, you know, he just wants something in between a period and an exclamation point. And actually, like several months ago, I think back in maybe spring, maybe April, Nate Silver tweeted saying that he too would like something in between and like something like 30,000 people either liked it or retweeted it where you're <laughs> like, okay, there's clearly a fair amount of people who also want something maybe not as intense as an exclamation point, but that's not as cold as a period. Right. What's funny about that is a couple people mentioned that they might use ellipsis instead, like you oh, know, the yeah. three dots. I use that all but the then time. Other people I found on Twitter saying that they find those really ominous. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. You can't, it seems like you can't win. Katie Binley, personal tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.